guest today is Nate Bowman, who's been on the podcast before, uh, talking with us about some uh, complicated stuff that was bothering us. But uh, we wanted to have him back because we were especially interested to talk to him about a new paper he uh, has just finished. Uh, although maybe maybe there's still some work going on, I don't know. But the, the paper is called Restructuring Ruritania. And to give a little bit of background for it, at least the background that I had in mind as I was reading it, there are these bills now pending in the legislature in Albany in New York that range in their kind of wisdom and importance from the, in my mind, utterly deranged and stupid to the, you know, maybe uh, there's a decent idea in there uh, uh, somewhere that wouldn't be too disruptive to the markets. But all of these bills are premised on the idea that what we really need is something that goes beyond the standard contract-based restructuring tools that sovereigns have uh, been relying on to restructure their bond debt. We need something that's more comprehensive, that eliminates holdouts, that extends beyond pure bond creditors, and we need new law in order to uh, to accomplish these objectives. And whether you agree with the objectives or not, everybody seems to agree that we need new law to do it. And then along comes Nate's paper, which suggests that maybe, maybe we don't need so much new law after all. Maybe the law has been there all along, and we've just been more or less ignoring it. And so uh, this was such a, a kind of novel and important way of conceptualizing this problem in sovereign debt markets that we were uh, hoping that we could get Nate to agree to come talk with us. And I'm happy to say, since you are here, Nate, welcome. I'm glad that you uh, glad that you joined us. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and uh, I appreciate the sort of generosity of, of the, uh, the novel claim. There are other ways one might characterize it, but I, I like novel. Novel is very good, and I I, um, I I thought maybe we could begin if you could just give us the the is the word is it pricey? I never know how to pronounce that word, but um, whatever that word is, if you could give us um, the the short little intro to the idea, and then we can go from there. So the short idea, um, intro to the idea, is that um, in a sovereign debt restructuring. Um, um, what you would want that um, uh, people assume that is not available under current law is the ability to impose new terms on non-consenting creditors in a reorganization uh, in a situation where you wouldn't be able to do so under collective action clauses. And my basic argument is that we have a, a legal mechanism that allows us to do that. And that legal mechanism is the equity receivership. The equity receivership is a procedure um, it's a very old procedure. It goes back to Elizabethan England. Uh, but at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, the equity receivership was used to reorganize insolvent corporations. Uh, and it was a procedure. Um, uh, it was developed by uh, and elaborated by the federal courts um, that allowed um, insolvent debtors to impose uh, new terms on their creditors without their creditors' consent. 
And prior to the adoption of the Bankruptcy Act, which happens in the 1930s, uh, the equity receivership was the mechanism that was used to reorganize um, uh, large distressed corporations. So with the passage of the Bankruptcy Act in the 1930s, uh, people basically stopped using, uh, except for some uh, strange exceptions, stopped using uh, receivership proceedings to reorganize corporations. But the receivership didn't go away. It's still an available remedy under um, American law. Um, and it's an available remedy on a simple breach of contract action. Um, and uh, my argument is that you could use an equity receivership, uh, a foreign sovereign could use an equity receivership to reorganize at least their New York law governed debt. And what I mean specifically when I say reorganized is they could use the procedure to impose new contractual terms um, on dissenting uh, creditors. And they could do so even in situations where under, say, a collective action clause, uh, the sovereign would be unable to do so. And so we have this very well-articulated body of law. Uh, it's just very old and is very seldom used, uh, but it's sitting there on the books. It's valid law that has not been preempted or overturned. And my argument is that it could be used by sovereign debtors. So, Nate, if, if I may take you just a, a few steps back uh, before I ask you to please explain to us the nuts and bolts in a simplistic way of what actually would happen, uh, because I, I, I find your piece utterly fascinating, and I'm so, so grateful you came uh, to talk to us about this. Uh, but you are not the first person, I think, to talk about equity receiverships in the context of trying to solve the holdout problem in sovereign claims. And uh, I can't remember, I think, you know, you and I, when we had communicated, there was a practitioner who had purported to write something about how to resuscitate equity receiverships. And um, maybe David Skeel and Doug Baird had at least alluded to this in their work. Uh, and um, uh, maybe Steve Lubin had written about it a long time ago. I should remember better because I think it was a conference that I organized. But the equity receivership is one creature that was used to get around the lack of bankruptcy. But there have also been other creatures, such as uh, the Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 23 or 23B. I should know. Lee and I wrote about this a long, long time ago, but I, I'm old and I forget. Uh, there's good faith duties that a very, very long time ago in cases like Yingling uh, were quite robust in the intercreditor context. There's the new stuff that's being used in cases like Purdue Pharma uh, that I'm not sure would uh, translate. But people have been thinking about different techniques that have been used in the non-bankruptcy to solve problems that don't fit neatly within uh, the bankruptcy cram down context uh, for time immemorial. And you probably looked at all of these. What made you think, okay, I'm going to invest in equity receiverships? Was it, was it the cool history? Was it... 
why was this the one you chose? I mean, I'm very glad you chose it because it's the most fun. Uh, but I'm curious about your uh, the the intellectual process by which you decided this this is what I'm going to write about. So, in my interest of this goes back to um, the fact that for many years I've taught uh, bankruptcy uh, in a corporate reorganization course at William and Mary, uh, and I, I tend to sort of uh, be a little bit historically minded. And so I was very interested in just where the bankruptcy code came from um, and um, uh, where sort of corporate reorganization law came from. And so independent of any interest in, in sovereign debt, um, I got interested in the history of early railroad receiverships. Uh, and as my students can attest, I actually, in my uh, bankruptcy course, I make them read 19th century uh, receivership cases to introduce uh, the ideas of corporate reorganization. So I had a, a sort of standing interest uh, in the receivership. As you point out, um, I'm certainly not the first person who's ever talked about uh, the possibility of using a receivership to deal with uh, sovereign um, debt issues. Um, it has been uh, it's been bandied about as a possible solution for uh, U.S. states that are insolvent. Um, it uh, has been Native uh, American tribes too. Native I want American, to throw that in. <laughs> Native American tribes. Um, uh, it was. Um, I know it was discussed, although not used. Uh, it was discussed as a possible mechanism for dealing with Puerto Rico's um, uh, insolvency. And so this is idea that's sort of been around for a while. Uh, what I haven't seen in the literature before, uh, and this was the gap that I was trying to I'm trying to fill with my paper, is someone sort of sitting down uh, and doing the nuts and bolts of, okay, what would an actual procedure look like? Uh, what sorts of uh, doctrinal uh, objections uh, might exist under current law? And what is the the actual state of the case law? Like, what cases would you uh, try and cite and rely on uh, to um, uh, uh, do a sovereign uh, receivership? And where where would the sort of weak places in the argument be? Where Where is it going to be the most challenging to do this? And so I wanted to look at it at a much um, um, sort of higher level of granularity than I think uh, it had been discussed at least previously in the literature. But certainly, as you point out, um, um, I'm not the first person uh, to do this. One thing I think that makes the equity receivership attractive as a mechanism aside from the fact that I just think 19th century railroads are really interesting, is that because the receivership was used uh, to reorganize corporations for quite a while, right? Um, uh, really from sort of the end of the Civil War um, through the 1930s. Um, so, uh, you know, you've got about 70 years of practice. We actually generated quite a bit of case law on it. And so um, it's a it's a procedure where um, we didn't we wouldn't have to be quite as speculative, perhaps, as we might be in in using other kinds of of procedures. Um, we really have a lot of well established law on this that was put in place uh, before the 1930s, and that that law by and large has not been overturned or preempted. And so uh, there's actual real life cases that you can cite to and discuss um, if you were to try and and put this into practice. So then that's a good segue into questions about what this would look like if put into practice. Can you give us a sense of that? Yeah. So the basic idea of a receivership is that um, I have an insolvent debtor uh, and a court appoints a receiver to take possession of all of the debtor's assets. Um, and those assets are being marshaled for the benefit of the debtor's uh, creditors. Uh, and in the old time equity receiverships, what would happen is that the receiver of, say, an insolvent uh, railroad 
uh, would take possession of all the railroad's assets. And then um, ordinarily what there would be is a judicial sale in which those assets would be sold in their entirety as a going concern to a new entity. And that new entity would be owned by uh, the participating uh, creditors of the um, insolvent railroad. And so the effect of this was essentially to transform debt claims into equity claims. Um, so what I'm envisioning is that an insolvent debtor would negotiate with the ordinary creditors committees as it would negotiate with. Uh, it would it would reach uh, uh, some sort of a preliminary settlement with most of its creditors, but there would be holdout creditors that uh, it would have a uh, it wouldn't be able to deal with um, using current mechanisms like a, a collective action clause. So then, what would happen is the creditor. Uh, the participating creditors and the sovereign would go into federal court. They would ask the federal court to appoint a receiver to take possession over all of the assets of the debtor, uh, the sovereign, that would be available to satisfy the claims of the creditors. Now, that's not going to be a lot of assets, but it would be some assets, and it would be sufficient to give the court jurisdiction over the case. Uh, the court could then issue injunctions um, against any creditor, participating or not, in the receivership proceeding, any creditor from attempting to enforce uh, their claims against the debtor. And that injunction is a well-established tool that receivers have at their disposal. The um, sovereign debtor um, uh, would then issue new bonds that would contain the restructured terms, um, and those new bonds would be issued to the receiver. And the idea would be is that those bonds would be the proper would be part of the property of the debtor that is available to satisfy the claims of the creditors, and those new bonds would be distributed to all of the claimants against uh, the sovereign. And then the final piece that would be put in place is that the um, federal court would issue an injunction against all of the old bondholders or claim holders against the uh, sovereign. And would say, uh, and what that injunction would say is, you are no longer allowed to attempt to enforce those claims in any um, jurisdiction anywhere in the world. Um, the only kinds of claims that you have against the um, sovereign that can be enforced without running the risk of being in contempt of the federal court are those new bonds that are issued. And that injunction. Um, uh, that sort of global injunction was a mechanism that was used in corporate reorganizations uh, prior to the 1930s. And so that's a it's a it's a very um, aggressive use of the court's uh, equitable powers, but it is something for which there is good federal case law that allows a federal court to do that. So the end uh, result of this procedure would be that the old claims against the sovereign would become unenforceable. But creditors would be given new claims, uh, new bonds against the sovereign with new terms. And the whole procedure would be presided over by a federal court. And the federal court, of course, would be um, amenable to arguments that um, these new terms would be unfair um, uh, in some way. And ultimately, the procedure would only happen with the approval of the federal court which is how the equity receivership worked as well. And the federal court's uh, job would be to make sure that the debtor, the sovereign, um, is not uh, abusing or taking advantage of uh, the creditors by taking away um, their previous um, rights and substituting uh, these new rights. Um, uh, so the, the procedure would be subject to a fairness analysis by the court. But that's the basic um, um, 
mechanism uh, that I'm envisioning. It would be a swap of old claims for new bonds that would be presided over by a federal court and then uh, consummated by an injunction. So Nate, may, um, thank you. That was so nice and clear. But yet I still have questions because this is such a big move and so creative. So one question that I have is, uh, are you envisioning something along the lines of the sovereign saying, uh, here's what I have. I have 20 billion available to pay your claims, your meaning the creditor claims, the trade creditor claims, the arbitration claims, the expropriation claims. I'm thinking of Argentina, of course. Uh, but, you know, we could think of Venezuela. It seems like your ideas have a lot of applicability to a couple of big current sovereign crises. Uh, and so the sovereign would somehow go to the court and the court would be persuaded that all that the sovereign has available is a limited pot. And then the sovereign gives the limited pot uh, to the receiver. Is it uh, so? My first question is: it, Is that what we would have? So the IMF maybe would do its sustainability analysis and verify that this is the this is the limited pot, and then the limited pot would be put uh, under the control of the receiver. The second question I have, if I may, but feel free to ignore, is that would creditors who in most sovereign bonds have a right under their contract terms to bring, even if the bond is under New York law, they, they have a right to bring litigation wherever they feel like. Uh, would, would they be bound? If this injunction is issued, would that restrict them from suing, say, in London or someplace else if they don't like it? I, I don't really understand how that the cross-border effect uh, works. But, you know, maybe if we don't know, we can ask Mark. So um, on your first question, yeah, I think that's the basic idea is that the, uh, so the sovereign uh, would basically come into court and would say, this is the, this is the amount of money that we have uh, that plausibly can be given to our creditors to satisfy uh, their claims. Um, and this collective procedure is going to maximize the recovery uh, for the creditors collectively, uh, because in the absence of the collective procedure, um, um, uh, we're not going to uh, be able to make these funds available. So there's going to be a question, right, of, of how credible is it uh, when the sovereign says that, right? Um, uh, maybe that's happy talk and the sovereign's lowballing um, the amount of money that they've got um, available and, and they're trying to cram down against the creditors um, in a way that's unfair. Uh, maybe what they're saying is is entirely plausible. Um, uh, and so that's that's going to be basically a factual uh, inquiry and uh, certainly something like the IMF debt sustainability analysis uh, and sort of outside expert opinions about the fiscal state of the country um, are going to be uh, really important. Um, but it, this is basically the inquiry uh, uh, that was done in the old time uh, receiverships, right, where 
um, at that um, sort of fictitious judicial sale, uh, there would always be this question of like, are you really paying enough for the assets or could you pay, could the the, the firm be made to pay a little bit more? Um, and the judge would make a, ju a judgment uh, about that. So, um, so your first question, yeah, that's the basic procedure um, that I am uh, envisioning. Um, on your second question, can you get the global injunction? The answer to that is actually yes, and there's case law on this uh, involving receivership. So here would be the example of a situation in which uh, people have been able to get global injunctions. So suppose that um, I am a um, I'm engaging in securities fraud. I'm running a Ponzi scheme, and the Ponzi scheme collapses. Uh, that would be a situation in which oftentimes a receiver will be appointed to take control of the um, defunct Ponzi scheme. And the idea is the receiver is going to take all of the assets um, that uh, the receiver can get a hold of, of the fraudster, um, is going to marshal those assets, and is then going to distribute them to the victims. And so then the question is, is while the receiver is doing this, can the victims just go off on their own and litigate? Um, and they might try and go off and litigate on their own in Texas or Illinois or someplace like that. And the answer... Um, that federal law says is that you can't go off and litigate on your own if the litigation is going to uh, upset uh, the receivership proceeding. And so I can get an injunction against you. And so you can't you can't go in and sue on some fraud claim in Texas or Illinois. Um, if you've got a claim against the fraudster, you got to come into the receivership and participate in the federal receivership proceeding. So then the question is, well, suppose that um, there's uh, assets abroad um, of the uh, fraudster. Um, so they stuff money in a bank account in the Cayman Islands or something like that. Can I go and litigate against them in Panama or the Cayman Islands as a fraud victim? Uh, and the answer that was has been given by the federal courts is the receiver can get an injunction and says you can't go litigate overseas um, uh, against uh, the fraudster uh, because that's going to upset um, uh, the balance of between the creditors in the receivership uh, proceeding. Uh, you've got to come in and make claims in the receivership proceeding. Uh, and so, yeah, you can get a global injunction uh, that is uh, uh, says to creditors, you are not allowed to litigate not only in any court of the United States, but in any court internationally. And there's due process concerns there, right? The, the object of the injunction has to be someone who's subject to the legitimate coercion of um, the federal court. Um, but if they are, if the federal court's got personal jurisdiction over them, there are certainly situations in which they will issue global injunctions and say, you're not allowed to litigate in the United States, and you're also not allowed to litigate anyplace else on the planet. And if you do, you'll be in violation of, you know, an injunction issued by a federal district court in the United States, and that federal district court in the United States will hold you in contempt. Do we have a sense of what kind of contacts with the United States would be enough to make a creditor subject to personal jurisdiction here. So I'm I'm imagining a fairly typical scenario, I think, where I'm I'm a distressed debt investor. I'm interested in buying because I anticipate a restructuring and I'm going to hold out. I ordinarily would create a separate entity for purposes of making the investment. And often that entity would be a non-US entity if only for reasons of secrecy. Um, so I I set up a non-US entity, it acquires the bonds. You know, there's a, even if these are New York law bonds and there's a payment mechanism that allows for payment in New York, me too, you can correct me on this, but I feel like most bonds also allow the holder at their election, or at least many bonds do, allow the holder to elect payment outside the United States. So, is this 
process gameable by the creditors who are really the primary targets of it? Like, can I just set up my investment entity so that it's not subject to personal jurisdiction in the U.S. and then go do as I please? I I think that is one of the central questions. Um, so, um, so the question would be is by virtue of purchasing the U.S. law governed bond um, and uh, receiving payment on the U.S. law governed bond, um, do I have the minimum contacts that are necessary with the United States um, for me to be subject to the personal jurisdiction of, of the U.S. courts? I take it that if you are, uh, if there is um, 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 sufficient contacts there to be subject to personal jurisdiction, uh, then you ought to be able to get the global injunction against uh, against those um, creditors. Um, I searched far and wide uh, to to see if I could find federal case law that answered the question of, is the mere purchasing of a bond uh, in the United States uh, sufficient to subject you to the jurisdiction of uh, US uh, courts, at least subject to the jurisdiction of US courts with regards to your rights under the bond? Um, and um, as far as I know, there is no federal case law on that specific question. There is case law that suggests that uh, certainly if I was uh, issuing bonds uh, in the United States, I'm subject to the personal jurisdiction of, of, um, of the United States. I think uh, it would be a relatively easy question for on personal jurisdiction if I am receiving payments through a U.S. Uh, bank uh, or financial institution. Um, and uh, the payment through the U.S. bank and financial uh, institution uh, that I'm receiving is... Um, um, part of the claim uh, that would be disputed um, and um, um, that the court would be issuing injunctions about, right? So there would be a nexus between my context and the legal claims that are the subject of the of the uh, case, that there would be jurisdiction in, in those cases. Um, I do not know of any case law that uh, um, answers the question of um, if I am uh, structuring the the bond so that I am receiving payment completely independent, completely independent of the U.S. financial system, but it is nevertheless continues to be governed by um, uh, U.S. Um, law, um, have I submitted myself to the jurisdiction of the U.S. courts? And so I think that that's one of the places where um, uh, there are unanswered questions about um, um, what you could do with the receivership. And I will say, right, that um, this is why um, I don't think that an equity receivership could be used to restructure all of the um, debts of a sovereign debtor. Um, I think it's non-U.S. law governed debt. It's almost um, uh, going to be uh, almost impossible to have personal jurisdiction um, over the creditors of that non-U.S. law governed uh, debt. And so I don't think you could really do much with an equity receivership on that debt. But I think there's a plausible argument to be made that if you buy a U.S. law governed bond, and certainly if you buy a U.S. law governed bond where payment is handled through the United States financial system, that you're subject to personal jurisdiction in the U.S. courts. So Nate, um, when I first read your paper and uh, I'm I'm so impressed that you and Mark are able to talk about concepts like personal jurisdiction with such ease since I just I remember with such 
horror the days from first year civil procedure where we talked about that still don't understand it but when when we first talked about your draft and we were uh, trying to think about situations contemporary situations where this idea would have uh, applicability or um, greater use than the ordinary situations Venezuela came up in part because the, just 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 there's so many claims against Venezuela out there. There's uh, bonds with different types of terms. There's promissory notes. There are arbitration claims. There are expropriation claims. There are trade creditor claims. And and Mark and I were talking earlier today about Argentina that seems poised to go into default again, uh, given the YPF claims against it and the GDP link bond claims against it. And there's still bonds from the 2001 restructuring that are still litigating and there's new bonds. Isn't equity receivership, modern version of the equity receivership, could that work well for these kinds of giant modern sovereign debt quagmires that that maybe we haven't seen before certainly the complexity of a venezuelan restructuring is going to be magnitudes higher than you know than say greece that at that time we thought was one of the biggest and most complex restructurings in history. I, I think Venezuela is going to draft it and probably the next Argentine uh, restructuring. Would you say this This is poised? I know you're very modest, but I, I will this work for that? Um, well, the short, the short answer is I don't know. Um, I, You're supposed I, to I, say yes. Of course, it will work, Nate. This I, is I, your I, idea. We're pushing you to that. Say so this is the solution to all our problems. So, what I think, uh, what here's what I would say is, I think it can be a very powerful tool that you can use to solve certain kinds of problems. Um, and um, here's here's the situation in which I think it's a very powerful tool. If I have a pool of uh, creditors. And I want to be able to cram down new terms against those creditors. And those creditors are subject to the jurisdiction of U.S. courts. The equity receivership is a very powerful tool there uh, because you don't have to have cat you don't have to have collective action clauses in um, uh, the debt obligations you so you could cram down against trade creditors. Uh, if people uh, turn their bonds with their CAC uh, governed bonds into judgments, uh, there's some question, I think, about whether or not the CAC would reach the judgment, um, but uh, you'd be able to um, uh, restructure and cram down um, uh, against judgments in an equity receivership. So um, I think it's a very, very powerful tool when I've got a big pool of creditors um, and I want to cram down against those creditors and the creditors are all subject to the jurisdiction of U.S. courts. Um, that's not going to be the case of all creditors. If I'm issuing, um, you know, euro bonds that are governed by the city of London and all the payments are are happening independent of the U.S. Uh, financial system, very likely uh, those uh, creditors aren't going to be subject to the jurisdiction of U.S. courts. And I don't think uh, equity receivership is going to be a powerful tool. But um, being able to cram down against um you know, your U.S. law governed bonds, for example, um, uh, or um, um, 
uh, trade creditors with um, uh, subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. That's a really big group of uh, potentially really big group of creditors. And so I think it's a it's a valuable tool in that case. The other situation in which it might be a valuable tool is in a situation where I've got creditors um, that um, just on their own, they might not be subject to uh, the jurisdiction of the United States. Um, but the main asset that everybody wants to go up, go after is an asset that's subject to the jurisdiction of the United States. So here I'm thinking about a situation like Venezuela and Citco, um, where uh, uh, the Petabase's ownership of Citco, uh, Citco is undeniably property subject to uh, the jurisdiction of the United States. Uh, certainly, the ownership of Citgo could be subject to a receivership. Uh, and for a lot of those Venezuelan uh, creditors, um, what they want to go after is they want to go after Citgo. And so I do think that the receivership in those sort of odd situations where you do just have some big, huge, valuable asset in the United States uh, that creditors are fighting over, uh, the receivership, I think, is uh, would be a better way of dealing with all of those conflicts. Uh, certainly, then I think what the the um, courts uh, um, and the U.S. government has been doing uh, with Citgo up until now, right? Which was that they were trying to kind of create this collective uh, procedure and keep uh, the creditors from doing the race to the courthouse via the sort of sanctions regime. Um, uh, which is, I think, a sort of strange backdoor way of getting something that looks sort of like the automatic stay in bankruptcy. And I think the equity receivership would have been um, a, a much more rational um, way of aggregating all of those claims um, and sort of uh, figuring out uh, how those losses um, can be distributed among the different creditors. Um, so I do. Yeah, I think it's a very valuable tool in this big, uh, uh, crazy world uh, that is crying, going to come crashing down on us. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going to be a panacea for all problems. Um, but I do think it, in, in some ways it will be more powerful than or it could be more powerful than just a regime that is dependent entirely on the scope of collective action clauses. Um, and uh, my sense is those are probably not going to be enough to save us. Maybe there aren't or maybe there are historical examples of this, I don't know, but I'm wondering what power the equity receivership would have to kind of facilitate sort of cross-jurisdiction and cross-creditor types of coordination other than through this injunction. So I'm imagining creditors who are potentially going to be enjoined coming in and saying, look, there's nothing equitable about what you're about to do here. You're going to impose deal terms on us when the domestic law and domestic currency creditors are are going to be left free to cut their own deal and official creditors are going to be left free to cut their own deal and the German holders of German law bonds, if there are any, are going to be free to cut their own deal. Like this is, there's nothing equitable about forcing a sacrifice on us that might then just go to fund other creditor claims. And I, you know, that in principle, that's what the comparability of treatment principle is supposed to do when, you know, official creditors insist on it and so forth. So maybe the answer is, you know, this is all just going to work itself out through the ordinary, uh, the ordinary processes. But I'm wondering if the equity receivership includes the power to say things like, here's your injunction, but it's conditioned on 
you know, X percent of the remaining creditors uh, agreeing to similar terms uh, and uh, coming in and submitting to this injunction, uh, something along those lines or, or similar injunctions in other jurisdictions or so forth? Um, so the short answer is yes. So I think uh, it would be um, in, right in the wheelhouse of a federal court uh, in a receivership proceeding uh, to entertain claims by creditors that uh, to say that uh, the the uh, the receivership proceeding uh, is being potentially abusive because it's cutting off uh, my rights as a creditor uh, when other creditors out there um, are receiving more favorable treatment. So the logic of the receivership proceeding right is that um, it's a collective it's a collective creditor's remedy. And the idea is is that the reason that we are mucking around with individual creditor rights and cutting them off by with injunctions or um, um, uh, judicial sales or other mechanisms is because uh, this is the best deal those creditors are going to get. Uh, and they get a better deal in this procedure uh, than they do uh, if we just sort of leave them to their individual remedies. So I think it would be fair for a New York law governed bondholder to come in and say, hey, we're being forced to take a haircut and all of the domestic um, uh, bondholders, for example, are being made whole or something like that. So um, I think courts would... Um, um, not only would um, it would be uh, within their wheelhouse to entertain such claims, I think they would have to entertain uh, such claims. So then the question is, is what sorts of remedies could we have for that kind of problem? And it seems to me is that there are two ways that they, this could be done. One is the sovereign itself could try to allay these concerns by putting provisions in the bonds, the new bonds that it issues to the receiver. Uh, so one uh, possible pr pr uh, um, thing that a sovereign might do is just try and pre-commit to uh, the creditors um, that are going to be uh, forced to take uh, these new bonds, pre-commit to them uh, that they are not going uh, to be forced to take losses uh, that other creditors are not. And the way you could do that is by just putting a most favored creditor clause in uh, the contract um, on the new bonds or some modified version of a most favored creditor clause so that if the sovereign tries to um, beggar its New York law governed uh, creditors, um, uh, the bonds just would automatically reset uh, according to the terms that were uh, the more favorable terms that were, say, offered to domestic law governed uh, bondholders or something like that. So uh, one thing that you might do is the sovereign might just try to um, um, foreclose these um, uh, sorts of concerns by pre-committing uh, not to abuse the process. The other thing that could happen, right, is that the um, uh, court itself uh, could um, refuse to um, uh, approve a reorganization uh, in a situation in which it thinks that the bondholders before it um, are being unfairly disadvantaged um, um, for the benefit of creditors that are not before the court. And so it would be within the jurisdiction and discretion, I think, of the federal court to say, no, I'm not going to give you your injunction. Uh, if you're forcing all of these guys to take a haircut and say your London governed bonds or your domestic law governed bonds um, are not being uh, forced to take any any kind of losses um, and you can't justify the disparate treatment uh, between the bonds uh, hold, uh, holders um, uh, to me, to the to the federal court. And so I won't give you the injunction. Um, and uh, the the federal courts, I think, could be quite subtle in how they could do this. So, for example, 
they could say, I won't give you an injunction on this deal. Um, uh, I won't give you the global uh, um, uh, injunction on this uh, deal that you're offering. Um, but um, I might give you a temporary injunction uh, to just sort of hold everything in the status quo. And you come back to me um, with a different deal uh, and you prove to me, the, the federal court, um, that uh, you're being fair to the, the creditors that are before the court. Um, and I can imagine a sort of dialogue back and forth between the sovereign, uh, the objecting creditors, and the federal court, um, in which um, uh, you could imagine it sort of going uh, uh, several different rounds uh, until uh, um, uh, the sovereign was offering a deal that the court deemed to be fair. Um, the advantage of the of the equity uh, receivership proceeding is that ultimately you got to prepare. You got to persuade the court. You don't have to persuade the objecting creditors, right? Because uh, if they're subject to the jurisdiction of the court, you should be able to cram down against them with an injunction. If you can prove um, to the court's satisfaction that the objecting creditors are being given a fair deal, um, and what you would argue presumably as a sovereign is that the reason that they're objecting is for strategic holdout uh, purposes. Uh, and that's not a legitimate um, uh, reason. So, Nate, thank you so much. We're close to the end of our time. I'd, I'm just going to sneak in one more question, if you'll indulge me. And that has to do with something I, I don't know about at all. Uh, but I have been watching... Uh, the Gilded Age, uh, because I have very lowbrow tastes and I like costume dramas, uh, which is has a lot about the railroad barons. And my impression, very casual, is that one of the reasons the equity receivership fell by the wayside and that federal bankruptcy with all of its uh, bells and whistles had to be put in place, is that there was a general perception that the equity receivership was not very equitable and vulnerable to abuse. And that's why we needed federal bankruptcy. Is that part of the reason why equity receiverships have not since then been popular? Now, my, my impression from your article is that uh, while that might be the casual impression, equity receiverships have in fact been used and maybe the, the history is not as ugly as I may have thought. Yeah, so there's a there's a big historical debate about um, um, sort of how celebratory or condemnatory should we be of the the pre 1930s uh, equity receivership uh, proceedings, um, and the critique that was the main critique that was leveled is that the the old proceedings were subject to abuse, whereby essentially sort of insider creditors that were represented by J.P. Morgan, uh, which also oftentimes included people who held um, equity, um, were able to capture the benefits, um, the economic value of the reorganized firm at the expense of little creditors. Um, so, you know, trade creditors or people like that. 
Um, and uh, the, the, the system was sort of unfairly rigged um, in their uh, favor. So that uh, the main objections were sort of objections about intercreditor creditor um, equity um, uh, between the parties. And there's a there's I think um, there's a real debate about how um, um, fair those criticisms are. I, there, there was clearly some substance to them. Um, in the 1930s, uh, the SEC, when it first got up and running, produced a massive critical uh, report under William O. Douglas attacking the equity receivership um, as, a, as an institution. Um, and that was part of a uh, concerted lobbying effort by the SEC to take over a large corporate reorganization. So there was bureaucratic um, um, empire building um, at stake in the creation of that narrative. Uh, my personal opinion is I think I think William O. Douglas's narrative about it was overblown. Uh, it was not as abusive as as the New Dealers uh, said that it was. But there were cases, I think, where it was um, open to abuse. Um, one um, uh, point that I would make sort of in my favor of um, uh, not entirely rosy, but somewhat rosy vision of the equity receivership is that the 1978 bankruptcy code, which is what governs us today, looks much more like equity uh, equity uh, receivership practice than does the uh, Bankruptcy Act and the Chandler Act that was put in place by the 1930s. That is that the SEC-centric vision that was created by William O. Douglas on the back of that critical narrative about um, um, corporate reorganizations under the equity receivership was decisively rejected by Congress in 1978, uh, in my opinion. Uh, when uh, we adopted uh, the current bankruptcy code, so I, I, it's it's a hard question, and I, I I think reasonable people can disagree with that. I will say that a lot of the the sorts of issues of abuse um, that were present in the equity receivership, I don't actually think would be present in the situation of a sovereign debtor. Um, and the easiest uh, way of thinking about this is that the sovereign debtor doesn't have equity holders that might be trying to maintain control of um, the railroad um, in the face of objecting uh, creditors. That the sovereign debtor uh, is actually much more like a sort of, in some ways, normatively more like a, an individual uh, in some ways than a corporation. And so that some of the inter... Um, creditor and creditor equity fights, which were at the center of the controversy over the old equity receivership, I think that those issues would be mitigated in the case of a sovereign. Um, the sovereign's going to have its own its own difficult set of questions, but I think they're going to be a difficult set of questions that are actually going to be different than the things that got William O. Douglas so upset about equity receiverships in the 1930s. Well, Nate, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a lot of fun for us to talk about and think about. Um, and uh, you, who knows, maybe the legislature in Albany will throw out uh, all of the stupid bills they're now considering and proclaim it uh, Nate Omen Day in <laughs> celebration of the solution to the, the sovereign debt uh, problems of the world. It, it, and when that happens, we'll have you back on. That sounds great. <laughs> and hopefully, hopefully before then, too. Um, thanks so much, Nate. Thank you. Thank you.